This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. This week, the first criminal charge is to emerge from the investigation of former President Donald Trump and his business dealings. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance charged the Trump Organization and its longtime CFO, Alan Weisselberg, with 15 felony counts, including tax fraud, conspiracy, and falsifying business records. Weisselberg also faces a grand larceny count, and former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen advised the 73-year-old to flip. Alan should be doing is looking to see exactly what happened to me, and he knows because he was involved. Both Weisselberg and the lawyers for the Trump Organization pleaded not guilty in court on Thursday. My guest is former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, who teaches at Columbia Law School. Prosecutors called it a sweeping and audacious illegal payment scheme. Tell us what they're charging. So prosecutors are charging a 15-year conspiracy whereby Alan Weisselberg and others at the Trump Organization would give part of an employee's compensation in the form of other things like rent-free apartments, car leases, cash bonuses. And on the books of the Trump Organization, it would not say that those things are income. So the Trump Organization didn't pay taxes on them. And then the person receiving those benefits also would not pay taxes on them as if they were income. So win-win for both of those people, but stealing from the taxpayers. So after a more than two-year investigation, two trips to the Supreme Court to get Trump's financial records, a joining of the forces of the Manhattan DA's office and the New York Attorney General, this tax case may strike some as much ado about nothing. Well, I actually think it's more meaningful and more meaty than I was anticipating, because from the reporting, it really did sound like it was going to be a very limited scheme about Alan Weisselberg's personal compensation and, of course, the Trump Organization's role in doing the tax fraud with respect to Weisselberg's compensation. But I didn't anticipate that it would go into a 15-year scheme, that it would explicitly mention other executives and employees had basically been doing the same thing. So it's much more sweeping than I thought in that sense. It leads me to believe that there will be more charges in connection with this scheme in terms of other people. Whether or not they manage to charge the other pieces of the investigation that we've been told about, namely the inflation and deflation of assets to avoid tax liability and to get loans, we don't know that from what happened. Do we know where Trump is in all this? Is he unindicted co-conspirator number one? You know, I'm not sure. I don't think so. It looks to me like the person that they were referencing as an unindicted co-conspirator, one was someone with a lesser role, perhaps a controller, you know, someone who actually was involved with the mechanics of paying people. Whether he is ultimately able to be charged is, of course, the huge question for everyone. I assume they're still working on that. Of course, if Alan Weisselberg flips, that will be one way that they can make great strides in that regard. But, you know, they also have a lot of documents in their possession. So they need to prove that not only Donald Trump knew that these apartments or tuition or what have you were being paid for by the Trump organization, that they likely can prove because apparently he signed some of the checks and so on. But they need to prove that he knew of the scheme. In other words, he knew that the Trump org was not paying payroll taxes on that income. And so that's the piece that maybe they have it from the documents, 
certainly if it exists, they could get it from Weisselberg. But that, you know, still, again, is down the road. We're not sure yet. So there was this pressure campaign to get Weisselberg to flip, which obviously did not work. Is this lawsuit part of that pressure campaign, putting even more pressure on Weisselberg? Well, it certainly puts more pressure on him. I mean, they had a whole bunch of meetings. He will have known exactly what they were going to charge. There were no surprises for Alan Weisselberg. So it's not that all of a sudden he says, oh, no, they're charging me with much more than I thought. I better flip. You know, that's not what's happening. At the same time, there's a difference between knowing in theory that this is coming and it's going to happen to you and actually being in handcuffs in a courtroom facing a judge and kind of having that all come to reality for you. And so it has happened before that when the rubber really hits the road and you're really in it, you're in the litigation, maybe he's going to be paying close attention to how Trump responds to all of this, whether he feels like he's still on Trump's good side or Trump's going to turn on him the way that he ultimately turned on Michael Cohen, of course. You know, these are the things he's going to be thinking about. I would say, though, that it still seems unlikely to me given that he, up to this point, knowing what he was facing, steadfastly refused to cooperate. Let's say Weisselberg doesn't cooperate. What would they have to do to connect Trump to this? Well, they need to show that he knew what was going on here, right? So it could be in documents if, let's say, there were memos that went back and forth that described this. Certainly communications that are in written form, like emails, which Trump famously doesn't email. So that's you know, one avenue that's likely not going to, to be available to prosecutors, text messages. I mean, there are ways that communications uh, between Trump and others that, that describe his knowledge of this could be captured. You know, formal memos are unlikely to describe a criminal scheme for obvious reasons. People don't usually write down that sort of thing. So, you know, they're going to have to piece it together. I mean, if they could show that Donald Trump knew about this, maybe because he had signed and reviewed things that, that made it obvious. Um, and then you couple that with testimony of people who had discussions with him about some aspects of it. Even if Weisselberg doesn't cooperate, there may be other people who are willing to cooperate, and kind of piece all of this together. But it's a big task. I mean, they really do have to show that intent and that knowledge. That's the hardest part of any criminal case. And when you have someone like Trump, who not only does an email, but he's at the very top. So in a lot of ways, he's insulated by the people below him. He just says, well, I didn't deal with the, the nitty gritty of the finances. That was Weisselberg's job. If he was running this scheme, you know, why, why would I know about that? But then you have to think to yourself, well, is it, what's Weisselberg getting out of it? Obviously, personally, he's getting this tax fraud benefit out of it for him. But it wasn't just him. I mean, the indictment says it was many other people at Trump work. So what is his, what benefit does he get out of letting other people also get away without paying their taxes and the organization get away without paying its fair share of taxes? And then you start to realize other people must have been involved. Now, that's not good enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that those people were involved. But you kind of cobble together all this proof and all these arguments. If you think you've got it beyond a reasonable doubt, then that's when you're ready to charge. Do you think Trump is saying to himself, wow, I avoided another legal problem. They're not getting me on this. No, I think it's a very, very bad day for him. 
because he has to be worried that Alan Weisselberg, under this pressure, will cooperate. And he has to be worried that the DA's office is going to be able to put together enough proof to charge him with all of the documents that they have recovered as part of this case, all of the people that they're still talking to. So I think he's very, very worried. It's definitely a bad day for him, no matter what he might put out there as far as public statements. He's unhappy. So the Trump Organization put out a a statement saying bringing a criminal prosecution involving employee benefits that neither the IRS nor any other DA would ever think of bringing. Is that true? Do you think that this is a case that the IRS or another DA's office wouldn't have brought? Well, that's certainly their position. And what's what's interesting about it is, you know, first of all, it's not really a legal position. I mean, they're not going to be going into court and saying, well, DAs shouldn't charge this sort of thing, even if it's technically criminal, so you have to dismiss this case. This is a an argument for the court of public opinion and, of course, for their client, Donald Trump, because that's what he wants to hear. He wants his lawyers to repeat this witch hunt narrative that he is so fond of here. Um, but it's also going to completely go out the window if they are able to bring other charges. I mean, you know, if they are able to bring any of these charges based on a scheme to um, to inflate and deflate assets and, and avoid taxes that way, to, to gain loans that way, then that is the sort of thing, obviously, that would be readily charged. But also, this is a pretty involved scheme. I mean, they charged that the president's company was engaged in a conspiracy across numerous people there for 15 years to avoid a good amount of taxes. And we only saw the amounts with respect to Alan Weisselberg. I mean, they haven't yet named the other people that they're talking about who received these benefits. So, you know, whether or not you can point to specific cases like this that have or haven't been charged, I I don't think you can say that this is unworthy of charging when you're talking about a scheme of this magnitude, this length of time, this amount of money. You know, I don't think that's a fair argument. But again, it's not really a legal argument. It's more of a kind of public perception argument. So do you think that they're going to charge other people with the same scheme outside of Trump? It does look like that to me. I mean, you know, you never can tell. You do have to wonder if they were going to. Why didn't they just go ahead and do it today? Um, but there are other people that are referenced in the indictment. And you know, they have all of the books and records. So they likely know who it was who received these illegal benefits. And maybe they're still kind of gathering the evidence in terms of whether those people took advantage of that on their own taxes and the evidence that they had that they knew what they were doing was wrong, et cetera, before they charged. You know, maybe that's why those other folks weren't charged today. But in the indictment, it makes very clear there were other people involved. So I do expect that we will see other people added to this particular indictment about this particular tax scheme that was charged. Finally, does this impinge in any way on the Trump organization's ability to do business while this is going on? Well, not in a technical way. In other words, it's not like they've had their assets frozen or under any sort of legal injunction or anything like that. But, you know, if you are a company thinking about doing business with the Trump organization, this is now an organization, certain components of which the Trump organization is really a compilation of different corporations. 
but two of those corporations have now been criminally charged with a 15-year tax fraud scheme. So, you know, will it cause people to say, hey, you know what, let's slow down and think twice before we want to sign this lease. This company may not be around. Uh, we may just not want to have anything to do with it in terms of the optics publicly. You know, you, you do think that it has to in some way impact their ability to do business in that kind of unofficial way as opposed to some sort of legally official way. So I, I think it probably will, although, you know, I don't know how much we'll know about that publicly or whether things will just kind of fall apart, you know, behind closed doors sort of thing. Thanks, Jennifer. That's former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers. The Supreme Court ended its term split six to three down ideological lines in the most consequential voting rights decision in a decade, limiting the reach of the landmark Voting Rights Act and making it harder to challenge Republican efforts to limit ballot access in many states. President Joe Biden denounced the decision, saying the nation should be fully enforcing voting rights laws, not weakening them. The ability of a state legislative body to come along and vote, their legislature vote, to change who is declared the winner, I find to be somewhat astounding. In the majority opinion, Justice Samuel Alito said mere inconvenience wasn't reason to invalidate voting rules, echoing his statements during oral arguments. People who are poor and less well-educated, on balance, probably will find it more difficult to comply with just about every voting rule than do people who are more affluent and have had the benefit of more education. My guest is Richard Brafault, a professor at Columbia Law School. How much of a blow is this decision to voting rights advocates? It is a blow. How much we'll see as further cases happen. I mean, the main thing is the court has made it now hard to prevail on a Section 2 claim in cases that are challenging rules that govern the actual ability to vote or to register the casting and counting of ballots. They basically raised the standard. They didn't actually set a standard, but the way in which the court discussed the evidence and the criteria, it's going to be harder for plaintiffs to win in the future. This was a 6-3 to three vote down ideological lines, and the justices have been able to forge alliances in other cases. There haven't been that many 6-3 to three votes. Why not here? That's a good question, and this may be one, given the way in which thinking about voting and voting rules has become politically polarized in this country in recent years, that seems to be showing up in the court as well. The majority is just really reluctant to second-guess state laws that are tightening up on voting. They're very reluctant to see laws that might have a, a disparate impact on minority voters to treat them as discriminatory. Uh, and the dissent, by contrast, is extremely sensitive to the burden that these new laws, and Justice Kagan refers to that, are having on voting in general, on minority voters in particular. So the court here upheld two Arizona voting restrictions, one that rejects ballots cast in the wrong precinct, and the second that makes it a crime to deliver another person's early ballot, so-called ballot harvesting. Explain the majority's reasoning here. It's actually a little unclear because it's kind of a messy opinion. The court itself says this is the first time we have applied Section 2 to this kind of a case. We're not going to adopt a crisp standard. It's going to be totality of the circumstances. But they go ahead and identify the circumstances. Two things worth saying up front is one thing they reject 
is a so-called disparate impact test, the kind of test that we see in a number of civil rights laws that say that if a rule has a disparate impact on minorities, in this case, the voting rule burdens minority voters more than it burdens white voters, that makes it suspect and the state has a higher burden of justification. The court says that the one thing they are not adopting is a disparate impact test. They are looking, as they say, the totality of the circumstances, is the voting process generally open to voters, less focus on the particular rule, but the overall equal and openness of the system. They will look at disparate impacts, but that's only one factor. And they're looking at kind of the magnitude of the burden, as well as the difference between white and non-white voters. They're looking at whether a rule is unusual or can be seen in other states. And they give a lot of weight to the state's interest in administration in coming up with workable rules that maintain integrity and prevent fraud, even in the absence of any showing of fraud. It does sound very messy and confusing. So does this give any guidance to the lower courts? I would say it's kind of a negative guidance. It's like, don't give as much weight as some lower courts had been giving to the fact of disparate impact, even when disparate impact is tied into some evidence of prior discrimination, because there was also evidence of that here. It leaves a little bit murky. What is it that plaintiffs can do to win? It's more about saying that certain things alone are not enough and that you have to look at the overall system. In the dissent, Justice Elena Kagan said, rarely has a statute required so much sacrifice to ensure its passage. Never has a statute done more to advance the nation's highest ideals. Yet in the last decade, this court has treated no statute worse. And she's referring there to the 2013 Shelby County case. Tell us about the historical significance of the Voting Rights Act. Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is the core act, that was one of the crowning achievements of the civil rights movement. That is sort of John Lewis and the March on Selma. Literally blood was shed in order to get that law passed. The 1982 amendment really dealt with how the Supreme Court had been interpreting some aspects of that law and was designed to strengthen it. And basically what the majority of the center are fighting over is just what did that strengthening mean? The Voting Rights Act, 1965 Act, was really dealing initially with laws which were blatantly discriminatory and being enforced in a blatantly discriminatory fashion. Poll taxes, literacy tests, simple refusal to register black voters. By 1982, the focus began to shift to more subtle things, like the use of at-large elections to make it harder for minorities when they were a large minority to win anything. And so that law was amended to say that we're going to reach things which have discriminatory results, even if the plaintiff can't prove discriminatory intent. And Justice Kagan says that meant to affect voting laws across the board and to look at the results. Is it having a different impact on black and Hispanic and native voters versus white voters? And Justice Alito sort of pulls back on that and says, yes, it has a results test, but it wasn't meant to change everything. You have to look at it in light of the totality of the circumstances and in light of whether or not the voting system, the political process are generally equally open. So she says the law is really intended to target individual rules. Alito pulls back and says if the system is generally equally open, that's an important thing to take into account. That doesn't eliminate the possibility of challenging individual rules, but he's just reframing it in a different way and to making it more problematic if you're challenging a rule which is non-discriminatory on its face. The burden is going to be a lot higher on plaintiffs to show under some very vague totality of the circumstances that he doesn't fully flesh out to show that it's discriminatory. So in Shelby County, the court gutted the Voting Rights Act. Does this finish the job? The Voting Rights Act had two major pieces. One was a thing called preclearance. 
And that basically said that for certain parts of the country, areas which had used certain tests that were shown to be discriminatory and had resulted in a low voter turnout, those jurisdictions could not adopt any new voting laws without getting them pre-cleared by the Department of Justice. That picked up much of the South, as well as a number of other jurisdictions around the country, including a couple of counties in, in New York City. And so that had a powerful impact in preventing the adoption of new discriminatory rules, because then the burden was on the jurisdiction to show that its new law was not discriminatory. That was eliminated in the Shelby County case. The court didn't actually eliminate the idea of preclearance, but it said that the formula that Congress was using to say which jurisdictions are subject to it, they rejected that. They said it was formula that goes back 50 years, and Congress hasn't shown that it's a good formula for today. So Section 5 is effectively gone. So the only really relevant provision is Section 2. And yes, Section 2, until recently, had been used primarily to attack what's called vote dilution, mechanisms which don't interfere with the ability to vote, but affect how votes are aggregated. Things like using at-large elections versus district elections, or some kinds of gerrymandering, districting systems that pack minority voters heavily into one district so that they don't have any impact on a second district. But since Shelby County, and as a result of some other things, there's been more litigation challenging rules that affect how people vote. Obviously, voter ID has been a big part of that, but restrictions on early voting, restrictions on absentee voting, the whole raft of voting rules that are being adopted in a lot of states right now, the restrictions on third-party organizations collecting ballots of absentee voters. And this is going to make it a lot harder for plaintiffs to win in those cases. So I wouldn't say the voting rights act is completely gone, but let's say it's going to be just a lot harder. As far as, let's say, these new rules that Republicans are pushing through in state legislatures. They're challenged still under Section 2, but the burden on the plaintiffs is going to be higher in some undefined way. Right. Let me pull back one second. You can also still bring a discriminatory intent case. There was a little piece of this case that addressed the question of discriminatory intent. The federal government's lawsuit filed last week against Georgia That actually is using Section 2 and focusing on the discriminatory intent aspect of it. And I think they might have done that because they could see this case coming. And they could see that this case was going to make it harder to make a discriminatory impact challenge. So the government is arguing that the very new restrictive voting rules that Georgia has adopted were actually adopted with the intent of making it harder for minorities to vote. There's a little piece of this case addresses that. One of the two restrictions that was at issue in this case, the restriction on third parties being able to collect uh, absentee ballots and and bring them to the Board of Elections. There was a claim that that was also adopted with discriminatory intent. The district court said, no, it wasn't. The Court of Appeals reversed and said there there was enough talk of discriminatory intent in the legislature that that should have been enough. The Supreme Court reverses that, saying the district, the Court of Appeals should not have reversed the district court's factual findings. In that discussion, there's some notion that uh, there was evidence that one or two people, somebody in the legislature was doing this for partisan reasons, that they were making it harder to collect these ballots because these are, were going to hurt, hurt Democrats. And this picks up on a question that's been dogging the courts now for about a decade or more, which is how do you disentangle partisan motives and racial motives? If it turns out that minority voters are disproportionately Democrats, and it's a Republican legislature that's adopting the rule, if they're able to say we did it for partisan motives, 
Well, that insulated from a challenge to say that it was adopted for racially discriminatory motives. That remains kind of a murky line. And there's a little bit of a discussion in this case that could, uh, underscores the idea that partisan motive isn't necessarily racial motive. And that may have some relevance to the, 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 United, the Department of Justice's lawsuit challenging the, the recent Georgia voting law. So then plaintiffs can sue and allege a discriminatory intent. Yes, plaintiffs can still uh, allege discriminatory intent. And, and if they can prove that, they can win. But it's difficult to prove. It's difficult to prove, right. Um, they can still bring a, 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 a disparate impact case as well. I think they'd have to show that, that the thing they're challenging has, a, I guess, a more substantial impact on minority voters and maybe a bigger difference. The court doesn't really lay out a clear standard here. But I think the court indicates its finding that the, the impact of the out-of-precinct test requirement, uh, prohibition, uh, just that, the, that they didn't see it as a big, as having a lot of impact or as having a big difference between minority voters and white voters. Now, the dissent disagrees. The dissent says, in fact, you know, it, it, the percentage differences are quite big. And, you know, if it affects 10,000 votes, that's what the margin of victory was for Biden over Trump in Arizona last year. So 10,000 votes could matter. You know, it's possible that if you're able to find a situation where the disparity between white and non-white voters is bigger, that might make a difference. And I have to say that I thought the court's finding of the government's rationale for the, the, the refusal to count out of precinct votes was incredibly thin. But at least in the one, uh, the, the ban on uh, third-party collectors of, of absentee ballots, there is a, uh, you know, there's a, a long history of, of arguments that that lends itself to fraud. And although there was no proof of fraud, uh, the, the court does have a long-standing argument, a long-standing you know, line that says you don't have to wait for fraud to actually happen if you think it's a real possibility. So there could be some situations where the, the rule that's being challenged doesn't have a good justification. Um, and that might be a possibility as well. And also in a six to three decision, yeah. The court invalidated a California requirement that charities list the names and addresses of their top donors in filing with the state. Has the Supreme Court before, in the context of elections, supported laws requiring public disclosure? Yes, the Supreme Court has consistently upheld disclosure requirements in the context of, 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 of elections and in campaign finance. That is actually the one uh, campaign finance law that the court has consistently backed, um, often by 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 lopsided margins. Uh, you may recall that in Citizens United, when the court struck down uh, the the limits on uh, the ban on corporate expenditures, the court voted eight to one to sustain the requirement that the spender in that case uh, file a disclosure report. Um, and two of the court's conservatives who are no longer on the court, uh, Justices Kennedy and Scalia in particular, were big proponents of disclosure. So this is uh, the court's first disclosure case since um, Ken both Kennedy and Scalia have left. Uh, and of course, since Justice uh, Ginsburg is gone. Um, and so what you had, what you, what you really now have is the court remains supportive of disclosure, but somewhat less so. Uh, it seems it's tightening up a bit on uh, the just on the the connection between the reason for the disclosure and the nature of the disclosure. Now, tell us a little bit about the decision. 
Okay, so this was something California, you know, like many states, oversees the charities that uh, solicit contributions in the state. Um, and the IRS, the federal government, uh, these charities get, are, are tax exempt. The IRS has a form called 990 that requires the charity to file, uh, to indicate its, its top donors, uh, either those who cross a certain threshold, like give more than 2%, that account for more than 2%, uh, of the donations to the charity or the dollar threshold for, uh, for smaller charities, uh, $5,000, I think. And this is an anti-fraud device. It's a way of seeing that if there, that maybe these charities are being manipulated by the donors, maybe this is a way of hiding money, uh, that maybe the charity has been going back and making payments to these donors or hiring the donors. So it's a way, it's really kind of, um, you know, uh, a way of, 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 of investigating uh, improper dealings. Uh, between the donors and their charities, uh, in California and uh, just a, and a handful of other states, I think maybe just three three other states, have have been asking for the same information. Uh, but until recently, they were not enforcing the demand. They began to step up their enforcement of that demand. Actually, this case has dragged on for a while, so probably more like 2010. And they were being resisted by uh, these two organizations, which are uh, conservative uh, advocacy organizations. And their argument was that both that the requirement on its face was invalid because it would chill donations and it was invalid as applied to them because they were particularly uh, susceptible to harassment or reprisal because they're politically active organizations or ideologically active organizations. Now, this was a rule that was not public disclosure of these names. It was just disclosure to the California Attorney General with a reporting requirement. But there was a concern that the names could leak out and then indeed at, some, at one point, they actually did leak out, uh, although California says it has tightened up its control since then. So the question is, you know, uh, you know, was this invalid? And that really turns on the standard of review uh, uh, for claims, a standard of review for government laws that require the disclosure of information. Uh, Supreme Court has said that there is a, the First Amendment protects freedom of association, the people, the, the ability of people to gather together to pursue goals together. And that disclosure uh, does raise issues under freedom of association because the disclosure of an affiliation can, uh, you know, uh, raise the dangers of harassment or reprisal. But the court has sustained disclosure requirements uh, because they could serve all various uh, valid government goals. Uh, again, anti-fraud or in the campaign finance area, in this case, will obviously be relevant for that voter information. So the court has... Um, use the standard, what's the standard of review of a disclosure requirement? They've used this standard, it's called exacting scrutiny. What does exacting scrutiny mean? No one knows exactly, but it's less strict than strict scrutiny, which is the highest standard the court uses in First Amendment cases. So in strict scrutiny, the government has to have a compelling interest, and, um, the, and the law has to be the least restrictive means of attaining that interest. With exacting scrutiny, there's got to be an important interest uh, and until today, all that you need, all you need to show is that um, the, the requirement uh, was uh, reasonably related um, to, the, to the government's interest. And in this case, uh, now a number of groups have sought to change that and to argue that, uh, uh, I should say a substantial relationship, but to change that and, to, and actually to impose a strict scrutiny requirement for disclosure uh, on disclosure laws. Court today says no. We're going to stick with exacting scrutiny, which me, which again has to mean um, sufficiently important government interest. 
but they have but they said they're tightening up the connection between the disclosure requirement and that government interest. Um, and to go beyond substantial relation uh, to something more like narrow tailoring. So in other words, instead of saying that it's just got to be a good relationship, a substantial relationship, um, so that there's a relevance between disclosing the names of top donors and the possibility of fraud, it's got to be narrow. It's legitimate that you want to go after fraud, but this has to be really pretty closely related to serving the anti-fraud function. And, so, and the court concludes, so that's a tightening up of exacting scrutiny. The court concludes here that the requirement of, of that every charity in California disclosed their, the, the, the top donors in the 990 is not narrowly tailored to the anti-fraud function. Uh, the California AG had not been using the, these forms in, in fraud cases. They were requiring them to be disclosed in situations when there was no evidence of any fraud. Um, the burden is was disproportionate to the gain, or to the anti-fraud function. And so uh, the court strikes it, um, says that California cannot impose this requirement. It's a big burden on privacy. Uh, and although the, preventing fraud is, is an important government goal, um, they didn't, it wasn't closely tailored uh, to the anti-fraud goal. Um, a couple of the justices would have gone further uh, and actually gone beyond exacting scrutiny and imposed strict scrutiny. So that part of the court's opinion uh, is an opinion actually by uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Um, of course, our, would have maintained the old exacting scrutiny. So uh, they, in, it's not quite clear what the standard is now, but it's not strict scrutiny. Thanks, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafault of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.